I barely recognise you. Oh, that's I'm still Dave, and you're still Ol, and this is still Sustainable, your weekly podcast all about people and the planet, and why, despite everything, we can have a little bit of a chuckly wuckly about it every now and then, can't we? Oh, we and can. where are we, and what have we got coming up this week? Oh, uh, well, we are in a very posh bit of West London, uh, but we're here because we're talking to an extremely interesting and insightful man. We had the pleasure of interviewing Bruce Parry, who many of you all know from his amazing telly uh, series about uh, called Tribe, um, where he's gone to live with people in the Arctic and the Amazon and all sorts of places. He'll tell you a bit more about that, but he's got a film out which is very, very exciting and um, yeah, explore some really interesting issues so we came to ask him about them. We did. So he tells us all about connection to nature and how you get it and why being a Marine's not all it's cracked up to be um, and why football is brilliant. And also about drugs. <laughs> and, about- and also about drugs. And we managed, I'm very proud of ourselves, we managed to not ask him about like putting bones through his nose no, that's, oh, and all of that stuff not, oh, that no, he does no. on the telly. Uh, because we know you've got delicate dispositions, dear listeners, uh, so we didn't want to, uh, to offend those. Anyway, Bruce is magnificent, very generous with his time. Um, so do have a listen, enjoy it. Um, Dave, you look like you want to say a thing. Just the usual disclaimer role. Ah. We do work for environmental charities, but these are very much our own views and of course Bruce's own views and actually in some instances in this interview it's very important to remember these are definitely Bruce's own views so if you've got any problem with anything that is said uh, take it out with me or or Bruce but not with anyone for whom many of us work yes yes good luck taking it with uh, taking it up with former marine Bruce Parry let us know how that goes Uh, one final uh, point of order the sound uh, in this recording sometimes gets a little bit interrupted by traffic noises and stuff because that stinky London was carrying on outside so um, apologies for that but hopefully it won't be too distracting so hello Bruce hi hi guys nice really nice to meet you thank you so much for coming to chat to us Um, for those of our listeners who don't know you um, would you mind explaining a little bit about yourself, who you are, and um, what you're up to? Sure. Um, my name is Bruce Parry. Um, I'm a documentary maker, adventurer. I don't know the n- number of different titles. I basically, I guess, I'm known mostly for the work I did with the BBC. I spent a number of years making documentaries. Uh, most famously, I think, with Indigenous people. I did a number of adventure docs, but I think the things I'm best known for is I, uh, a series called Tribe, where I went and um, lived with indigenous peoples in various parts of the world, in the Arctic, the desert, the forests and what have you. And was about uh, 10 years ago, Tribe, wasn't it? Yeah, it was more even, actually, yeah. Sort of um, 2003 or four, I think we started doing that. I'm Bruce Parry. I'm going to be travelling through an unpredictable, dangerous terrain. Many of the tribes are locked in battle, fighting bitter, bloody feuds. Tell me, in which direction are they? And uh, they went on for a number of years. We made 15 episodes of that, which was me living with all these extraordinary people, having different insights into ways of living, different ways of perceiving the world and being connected with each other and nature, which was a beautiful 
insight into life, into humanity for me and for the audience too. Um, and then I did a series of going down the Amazon, um, which is more about globalization, if you will, sort of looking at cocaine and gold and oil and soya and logging and slavery. So it's like it was an entertainment show, but I was always hanging out with people who were in, in sort of relatively interesting places. Uh, and then I did a series around the Arctic, which was again, a, a, again a sort of um, entertainment event show about me going and living with um, various peoples in in the high north. But it, but the uh, sort of the the underriding theme was climate change, I guess. You know, seeing what was happening there. So if I'm right, that hasn't always been what your life has been based around, uh, yeah. and you started off. It was something quite different. Is That's that, very that true. true. Yeah, I mean, like, I uh, I started out life in a very different space. You know, I, I my my first job from from school. I didn't even go to university. I, w- I joined the Marines at eighteen. Um, did commando training as an officer, and stayed in that for about five and a half years. Wow. Um, Why did you join the Marines? Because I had, was full of young, youthful angst and wanted to prove to the world and myself that I could do the toughest thing that I could imagine doing. Uh, I came from a military family, so it was like, I wasn't pushed, but it was like that was kind of, I, I didn't have any ethical questions about being in the military, let's say. It yeah. was like, that felt like a totally normal thing. Why would I question it? My dad was one. Um, and... Um, and I also, I, I, you know, I bought, I bought into all the, the stuff you read in the brochures, you know. I was like the <laughs> canoeing and the climbing and the abseiling and all that sort of stuff and being a, being a man and running around and getting covered in mud and painting your face. And I was just like, that sounds great. I'm up for it, you know. I mean, it, the, it does sound great. <laughs> you know, the, rea- the reality, of course, is very different. Uh, you know, I cried myself to sleep most days through the training because it was so tough. It's like, wow, okay, this isn't what I was expecting. This is hard. This is really hard, you know, and it was. But did you still get that kind of um, feeling that you were doing something very masculine and that sort of... I mean, did you... Did at any point, did it feel like I'm doing a thing that, you know, that, that I shouldn't be doing or was it still... No, right you kind of... It's very interesting how the sort of bigger questions of of um, what is the overarching aim of what I'm about here kind of a bit sort of like they disseminate over time your your thing becomes very quickly about the fact that you're going through this incredibly difficult process with a bunch of other people that suddenly you know them better than you know anyone else and it just becomes about the camaraderie and your friends you know and and those that have also done it that came before you so there's a huge sort of loyalty to the other marines that were there before you know your esprit de corps and the history and the the battle honors and all these things you know you they drum up so much emotional connection through you uh, to you and and then within that packaged within that is is this sort of uh, idea that our nation is was always a force for good mm. You know, and so you just have to swallow that pill and then the rest is all acceptable, you know, and no one really goes into questioning that, even though a government might change policy from one day to the next and you still go out doing whatever you like. You know, you don't really question that you're really in it for the guys that you love, who are your best friends. And then we just all buy into the bigger picture together, you know. So without wishing to make too trite uh, comparison and there's <laughs> oh God. here comes a trite comparison uh, <laughs> that that's obviously a very close-knit and uh and to an extent as close kind of tribal kind of relationship you just described there although it strikes me that 
from the outside, it's a very hierarchical one, a very clear chain of command. Whereas, from what I understand, you found most striking about your later experiences is that there are communities in the world that have a total lack of hierarchy. So, was the kind of experience in the Marines was that the kind of germ of your exploration towards? Not really, not really, no, no, no. just you were 18, you were in the Marines. I was just, you know, in all truth, no, I didn't question those things during that time, you know. I mean, like, I was questioning some aspects of my life, like, uh, I was still very Christian, I came from a very Christian family, and, and so I maintained that through my time in the Marines too, so I wasn't, I don't think I had started on a deep personal investigation at that stage of my life, but it happened soon after, when I left, you know, because it's a very, very tightly knit little bubble being in the forces. And then, of course, you leave um, and it's, it's tough. You know, I was very lucky that I left early and also I'd become an adventure, I'd become a fitness training instructor in the Marines. And I like my last job was like head of the fitness training team for the commander training center, which was like a very prestigious job. You so, were like the, the, the buffest of all the Marines. I was the buffest of all the Marines. I was pretty buff back then, it has to be said, you know. Like, I led a bunch of really amazingly buff dudes. And like, I, honestly, I've no, I don't think I've ever laughed so much in my life leading those guys. They were absolutely amazing. I loved, I loved the job, the sort of e- the energy in the force of character and the, and the force of like will-do, can-do attitude of these guys that were somehow I was in charge of. They were much older than me and more adept in many ways, but like I was their boss. And so I, don't really, I didn't really question it much at that time, but afterwards when you leave, suddenly you're, um, you're thrust into this other realm. And as I was saying, I was lucky because I had a particular qualification that actually moved quite nicely into the civilian world so I went off to Loughborough and did PE in sport because like you know being a physical training instructor that that was something I could transmute over into the civilian world so I went to university and then started rubbing shoulders with people who were very different to the ones who I'd been with previously you know I'd bought into the marines hook line and sinker I was like that became my new family that was my overriding way of looking at the world and then suddenly I was rubbing shoulders with people who um, were very different, and that, and and also I think girlfriends at that time really um, were a massive part of my change. You know, like, darling, why are you stood to attention in front of the television? <laughs> time, time for bed now. <laughs> but get back into bed. You know, what, what are you doing? That's just madness. It's only the rugby. They're just like you know, it's just playing with for you. They're just playing with that shit. You know, what is that about? Why are you into that shit? You know, it's like. I mean, like, I, was, I was quite far out. And so luckily, pillow talk was one of the big things that sort of made me question, you know. And so in a way, that was the beginning of my, um, of my investigation. And then also, I was super anti-drugs, you know, when I was in the Marines. Really? Of super, super. If anyone's seen anyone smoke a spliff or anything, I would have called the cops, you know. I was like, really? Really? Like, I'm so into the Marines, so into it. And, like, we call it corpist, and you're, like, so fanatically professional. And in as many ways, it's an amazing experience to be amongst people who have that attitude. It's like, wow, we're all just want to be the best. And in, within that, it's like there's no capacity for anyone, like, losing mental agility through some letting go space. We're all, like, full focus the whole time. So drugs and stuff were just not part of our... I'm sure there are Marines who do, but I didn't ever come across them. And so when I left as well, that was like, that, that was an anathema to me. And then suddenly meeting people where, I mean, I was persuaded 
by a, a girlfriend I was madly in love with to do a mushroom trip. And that, that was like a huge transitional moment for me in my life. It's like, oh my God, this is shit. I've no, what is that? You know, that made me question my spiritual beliefs. It made me question so many things. And that was a huge shakeup for me. So there's a number of things that, that happened that really um, started me questioning and altering who I was and how I saw the world. You've got a film out, imminently out, at the time of recording. A uh, new film, documentary film, Tawai. Tawai. Tawai, Tawai. A voice from the forest. So tell us a bit about it. We, we've seen a bit of the film. Uh, it's really quite moving, I think, the bits that we've seen. There's a real sort of emotional connection in there. But, but tell, our, tell our listeners what's going on in it and what on earth a Tawai is and how we get some. Because I, I, I want some of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tawai is the we chose the name because it's the um, it's a word in the language of the Penan people who are the sort of the backbone of the film. They're the group of people I lived with once before when I was making the tribe series. They live in Borneo. They're nomadic hunter gatherers, which means that they literally walk through the forest carrying everything they own on their backs, and they. Um, still hunt and gather. They're before the age of domestication of plants and animals, before agriculture and all that. So they're a really interesting group. And that word for them is like an inner feeling of connection that they have for place. So for the forest, for their home, for the landscape. But it's not, it's a f- it's sort of, it's, it's quite hard for us to translate because we don't like culturally have a, it's not like equivalent. a flag. It's not like a sort of nationalism sort of. No, 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 thing, no, no. Right? Not in the slightest. No, it's more of a nostalgic longing. It's like a feeling held. It's like the the sort of. I mean, I can only I can only um, guess because there is no direct translation. But when you ask them about it, there they would say things like, we, "You know, I feel to why for this forest because it's like being held as a mother does her child. You feel nurtured. You feel secure. You feel you feel that you're." Um, protected by the space you know and you can you can survive here you can it will look after you um so there's that sort of aspect to it too and i think also some literal feeling you know there's some um connected feeling that they have um that again culturally we it's quite hard for us to um articulate but so we thought that was an interesting um word to use as the title because our film does go into uh, what is it, what is connection to nature, you know, and what might have lost as this group who were nomadic hunter-gatherers have started to settle now and turn to agriculture in the time when I met them before to now, they've gone through this transition. And we kind of asked the question, well, <clears throat> what happened to us all during this transition? Um, and um, what can we learn from this group as they go through that? And we kind of look at that um, and ask some questions around that. And you're right, it's a, it's a poetic piece. You know, it's very different to my sort of televisual pieces, which are a bit more sort of high-octane, a little bit more um, jumping cows and drinking blood and getting doing, naked. Doing and foul things to your body. Doing you know? foul things <laughs> yeah. to my body, quite a lot of that. So there's not, there's not much of that. In fact, there's very almost none of that. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's a more thoughtful, um, philosophic piece if you will um, it's gentle it's trying to elicit a feeling I'm really thank you for saying that you felt something because that was our aim what can be learned from people's living lives very different to our own and is it even possible to integrate the wisdom of small intimate societies 
into our vast, complex civilizations. The Penan have a word that describes their feeling for the forest. It's a word that doesn't easily translate. A relationship that's hard to describe. They call it Tawai. Is trying to sort of it, it explains stuff um, intellectually, and it gives us some understanding of why um, some of the things that we look at in the film. It gives us a, a sort of a, a grounding, a basis for that, but then it also tries to elicit an experience to go alongside it. So that, which was not an easy thing to create as a filmmaker, but um, we'll see what happens when it hits the hits the world. One bit that struck me very powerfully was. Um, the moment I think when you meet for the second time after a long, long, long distance, um, the Penan people, um, and you are embraced with, with a power and warmth that just leaps off the screen, and you know straight away it hits you in the heart as a viewer, you know, not not knowing anything about you or, or the story at this at this stage. Um, but with but with a sadness as well. I mean, that, yeah, it's yeah. definitely not a. And, and there's that bit. Sorry to sorry to interrupt. Are oh, uh, you um, though? No, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's there's that bit when the 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 daddy, the the yeah. guy from the tribe, says, uh, "Just tell him. I'm just telling him the good stuff. Yeah, for now. Just just the good stuff. We, yeah. He doesn't need to hear the bad stuff." Well, they're struggling. You know, they're struggling, and um, their whole life is about their struggle right now. I mean, they've lived in that forest for. Um, that particular indigenous group has been there longer than any other group that's still around in Borneo today, you know, so they're like um, the oldest culture of that island, if you will. And they've always been in the forest and, and mostly always been nomadic. And and now, of course, the life of a, of a hunter-gatherer and the life of a farmer can't coexist, you know, that, that those are, they are opposite ways of being with the land. One is like you take it all down and you grow stuff and the others like leave it, to be as it will and we'll find the things where it likes to grow and those two ways of living can't co coexist so as the farming has expanded or our globalization has expanded and the forests has been gone and all or the miners or whatever it is the forces of globalization encroach they've always had to move to find more and more remote spots but there are none left you know so they really are feeling the end of days for themselves and also um, they don't like many indigenous groups have been able to secure their own lands, their, his, their historic ancestral lands as their own. But in Malaysia, sadly, very sadly, the Penan are not able to do that. Um, and is that we were talking about this earlier? Is that in a sort of bizarre and fairly horrible paradox because they're nomadic and because? They don't associate with you know discrete patches of land. Is it is that why they're unable to, or is it more? Well, there's a, a bit of that. Um, but when when we say nomadic, we think of like that being like mindless wandering forever. It's not that at all. I mean, there's different types of nomadism, but the particular type of nomadism they have is they still have a patch of land, like a, but it'll be a large landscape. So we like this valley, and maybe the next valley up is ours, and we'll move around that, and we'll move every few weeks or every month or whatever it is but this but we're only operating within a certain space so when we say their ancestral land that that is a very defined space but the reason that they're not able to um, claim it as their own is that Malaysian law 
which has given some indigenous peoples their lands, but it, it specifically says you can only apply for your land if you can show that you've been there, and they can't. I mean, literally, they are so... Because they're so light, you know, yeah. they, they don't leave an impact, right? Well, they so, yeah. pretty much don't. I mean, there, there are NGOs who have started working with them in recent years, you know, because it's been such a struggle, who said, oh, actually, no, through maybe, like, if we reevaluate the letter of the law here, there are, they do collect sap from a poison tree that they use, and so there's a number of trees that they have ancient markings on as they've collected over the, over the ages, and that's about all that could be found that shows that these people have been there, you know, and so that, that struck me as an interesting place to go and look at how we want to connect with nature, how we want to live more in a symbiotic or balanced way with nature. Well, that's an interesting group to go and visit, you know, because that, that, that's a very real um, story about how, indication of how it is that they are existing in the world today and how we all did, you know, at one time. So do you see a kind of inevitable um, repetition of the journey that Western cultures have been on because of the forces of globalisation? Or, or do you think it is possible to cling on to the ancient ways of, of living? And, and may, maybe the West, is, the, the West is looking at these and, and recognising that actually that is a more meaningful way to exist. And, and I think that the, the, the sort of <clears throat> the hunter-gatherer and the nomadicism is it's very debatable about whether or not that's something that we should aspire to having or being once again i think that the idea for anyone listening to this or most people that you'll ever meet of like turning back the clock to be a hunter girl is just like not on the radar in any way shape or form so even if actually that might be a really beautiful way of being um i don't think it's anything that is remotely approaching what anyone's imagining for the future so i don't think that turning back the clock is part of um my message but what is is um is that the, the way they organise their societies and that's something that we look at in the film it doesn't become like the conclusion to the film because it's too big as a, as a drop it's like okay it's, it's too much so we, the conclusion is in another space but we touch on it as we go through I mean these are egalitarian societies we talked about it earlier me being in my hierarchical state and here is true egalitarianism and what was really funny was when I was doing my tribe series, you know, I lived, well, we did thir 15 episodes and every group that I went to visit, of course, I learned amazing things. I saw and experienced wonderful things with these, with these extraordinary people. But it, it has to be said that when I went to visit the Penan right at the end, it did feel like to me, and I couldn't put my finger on what it was initially, but it felt like to me that I, had, I was now in the company of a group of people who were so different that it was like it was almost like it was them and then it was everyone else and like and I was really terrified of ever sort of uttering those words because they 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 seemed either romantic or it seemed like they're different um 
And I don't mean they're different as human beings, but the way they structured their society and the way that they behaved and, and interacted with each other in their environment was different. And it was only much later that I kind of put it all together. And that's what the film's about, is that their sense of equality and their sense of seeing each other as individuals, yet part of this, part of a collective, a collective of humans and species and landscape, was what was so different. It's like they had eliminated competition from their daily practice. So even in the way we talk, it's like a lot of it's like a little bit chippy, who's the, you know, who's the, who gets the better quote in all the rest of it. They, that just wasn't present. They, it was all, it was just coming, everything felt like it was coming from a different space. Well, it all sounds kind of spiritual. I mean, it sounds very, um, I was going to ask you, you know, how do, you live in a concrete tower block in the middle of a city, like the one out there with the cars going past out the window. Um, what can you do in practice to kind of get some of that connection in your life? I can see how you can get it if you could design a society from scratch, and yep. I could see how you could get it if you can get yourself into a wild environment. But what do you do in, a, in everyday kind of lives? And is it about, is it a spiritual thing, or are there practical kind of things you can do as well, do you think? Well, I think that, um, you know, the, the phrase spiritual is is clearly a red flag for many. It's like, I'm going to run the other direction if you start talking about spirit. What is spirit, you know? Um, so I'm going to avoid that for a second. But uh, I do think it's a way of experiencing the world. I do think it's a way of perceiving the world. And we go into this a little bit in the film. Um, and uh, But what 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 came about from my own personal experiences since being with the Panan the first time, the changes that I went through in my own life that gave me more insight into what this might be, um, as well as then studying loads of new stuff about the way the mind works and all the rest of it, um, uh, I realized that actually what was, what was interesting to me was that the Panan, in their shift to agriculture, previously they had to meditate on a daily basis. Hunting is meditating, when you're, when you're looking for where the things are, you have to be alert and in your senses. When you're trying to find the animal that you're hunting, you can't drift off in your mind. You have to be fully in your senses, in your body, in the here and now, incredibly attuned to everything that's going on, listening, smelling, feeling, touching, all of it in order to be able to get that animal. Otherwise, it's going to get away because you can bet the animals are present. Mm. They're not yeah. drifting off. They're not worried about their next mortgage payment. They're, they're or, not. They're, they <laughs> are there. They, are, they yeah. are present, you know. And likewise, as I said, even me just learning to, to forage, you know, if I'm just walking the dog and looking at the horizon, and you know, I'm missing all that stuff. You have to be here and now and present to what's around you in order to be, to be able to feed yourself. Now, of course, you can carry that on into today. And you can, I could be present walking up and down the high street, but you don't need to be. You don't need to be present to be a farmer. You can be but you don't have to be. So there was a time, I mean, this is like the theory we kind of propose in a sense. It's like these people on a daily basis are meditating and what that meditating is doing is it's actually using parts of the brain and it's balancing us in a way that when those, of, those people who, who, who know, who've done meditation retreats or what have you, you know that something shifts within you where you feel more deeply an empathic connection to that which is around you. It's just like any... 
you go to it's football. It's like football. That's it's, what like it's like football. I've often maintained this. Of, <laughs> you don't. It is that like is the face of a man who is not convinced. <laughs> it is because you spend you spend ninety minutes, obviously less than that in Cambridge United's case, um, watching the game, and in that you are totally absorbed in yeah. it. Yeah, and you're not thinking about Brexit or mortgage payments. You're and and you're in a sort of community of people who are all yeah. doing the same Absolutely. thing and there is something powerful in that tell me there's something powerful no no no. i mean yeah. i actually likened it with one point in the film we go off to india and i go to this thing called the kumelo which is like the largest gathering of humans like i think the one we went to was the largest gathering of humans ever recorded like 30 million people like 120 million people arrived or something and the 60 the estimates between 60 and well, 30 and 60 on that particular day, all with one intention. We're all going bathing in the Ganges, and everyone does it. And so, and everyone's naked, and is, well, not everyone, but pretty much naked. And were you naked, Bruce? I was nearly and naked. I went out into the crowd. It allowed me suddenly to see myself very differently. So, and I likened it to a football match. You know, it's like everyone's looking at the ball. Suddenly. Everyone's, and you know, and, I, and so many people say about the experience they have in the crowd is is magical somehow. It feels, it 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 fulfills them in some way. It it nourishes them. They feel a sense of camaraderie, and all. We don't have language for it, but it it feels beyond just a rational thing. It feels extra somehow. Extra beyond words like this is that's why we're so fanatical about it and the experience I had when I went down the Kumela was absolutely like that so much so that it actually in that moment it felt like I literally was left my own body and was part of the whole you know so yeah in that sense very much what we would consider to be a spiritual experience um, and so yeah just like football <laughs> when the seagulls follow Chora, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. So, uh, so you mentioned when you uh, had left the Marines um, and you were in a relationship that you were persuaded to take mushrooms and that, that was a powerful experience for you and I know that in, in uh, other stages of your life you've taken I can never pronounce it I, I, ayahuasca ayahuasca and that, that's and it, iboga and yopo and abine and a few other okay. tribal medicines so tell us a, tell us a bit about what they are and, and, and more importantly how you respond to them and, and, and what the power therein is okay well thank you for that opportunity because i know that i did mention mushrooms before and of course they're a class a or whatever they call it schedule one drug in the uk so you know it's um the, it needs to be contextualized and so i'm grateful for that opportunity um just go do them <laughs> <laughs> they make you a fun guy to be with yeah. right? hey <laughs> the so you know <clears throat> Yeah, I have to be careful what I say, really. It's that um, I... Well, let's put the mushrooms to one side. Sure. The, the experiences I've had doing what I consider to be incredibly powerful medicines with indigenous peoples who see them as such. I mean, what is a drug? So often drugs, we, take, we go to the doctor and we get drugs. We a have drugs. A cup for, of drug here. Yeah, all coffee, sorts yeah. of sugars, all sorts of things. They're all different drugs. And it just depends on your society as to which you consider to be useful or not and which are 
helpful and which are recreationally dangerous or what have you so you know we live in a society where we've we've made very strong delineations and other societies see some of these what we might think of as as um, mind-altering substances as also very beneficial and I just happened to I mean having you heard that I grew up very very anti all that sort of stuff and and then I have lived with indigenous peoples who've through very with with very organized ritual given me stuff to imbibe that has been well you've seen it on the box I mean it looks harrowing and terrifying and like not a very pleasant experience at all and I so often get people come up to me in the street because it looks quite ambiguous what I think of it in the shows but people come up to me and say oh my god you're that guy that gets naked and does drugs and and like oh what was that like doing that horrible ayahuasca you were vomiting it just looked horrible and having to look at yourself what a horrible thing um, and and that's okay that it's ambiguous because it's the BBC but the reality of that is that I actually had some of the most profoundly positive healing experiences of my life the trip slowly builds lights and shapes seep into my mind as I lie on the earth floor powerful visions of childhood return of past misdemeanors things I've hidden away in my subconscious I had an opportunity in those settings which were very held by people who know what they're doing from many, many generations of learning that in a, in a, in a, in a ritual where everyone is together <clears throat> so you feel safe and the opportunity to then take these substances and what happens during the, the imbibing of them very often is you get an opportunity to reflect on yourself. And unlike going to meet a therapist who's telling you about yourself and you can like kind of lock horns with them and argue in your own psyche like yeah I'm not sure about that but this time when you take these substances what happens is you get insights into yourself that are impossible to to deny so you suddenly see oh my god that's what I'm like oh my god that decision that I made or the way that I treated that person that wasn't very sweet or that's how I've behaved or this is what's happened to me and that's why I'm behaving like this and all of these things that just suddenly feel so real it's like it just feels undeniably true to your own understanding of yourself and they're such revelations that it doesn't necessarily cure you of those things in that moment but it opens a window for you to see something about yourself and gives you a a moment of opportunity to make decisions in your life to behave differently. And then you're given choices. You either just get back on with daily life and jump back in, or you go, oh, no, I'm going to make some changes in my life. And that's what it's done for me. And, and that's been incredibly beautiful. It's not easy always seeing yourself that way, but it has been amazing. And so as a medicine for the psyche, if you will, it's one that I don't think we have the equivalent we don't have that in our medicine cabinet and it's not one that's prescribed by doctors we actually numb down all of that stuff to get on with your life rather than bring it up and evaluate it and let go of it it's a very different way of dealing with the problems of the mind in our society and i think that their way from my experience is 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 much more healing it actually has much more possibility for the greater 
harmony for us all rather than ours which is just dumb it down and just get on well it feels like in our in our society a lot of what you describe when it happens to people some people might call it a breakdown almost that kind of you know when people just have that moment of critical reevaluation of what they're doing in their life and i wonder if maybe we all need a bit of breakdown sometimes maybe that maybe the way we even think about that is wrong yeah, I mean, like, again, in some of these indigenous communities, when someone goes through what we would think of as, as a psychotic experience, they're like all, like all ears. It's like, okay, great, you know, what, what are we going to learn? You know, wow. because so often actually breaking out of, you know, we, we, all, we all grow up and go to school and get thrown in boxes and confined and, like, put on the treadmill or the conveyor belt into being valued members of society. And, and there's so much very important and beautiful stuff that happens in that phase. But there's also a lot of stuff that like constricts us. And sometimes when we want to break out of that, we see that in our society as like someone's gone crazy. But actually, maybe they've actually just really strong person just like can't deal with the constraints of the madness of the world that we've created. And like, I, I'm, I'm definitely not the first to have put that forward as an idea, you know, like Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and all the rest of it. That's what those are about. You know, what is madness? What is madness within society? And what is sanity within society? And this is all about perspective. And, um, you know, clearly this is a very, very complex area. And I'm not suggesting, I'm not being, making light of mental health and, and the, the very important work that our society is doing towards improving that. But I, but I, I do think that my experience, the... the, the the, the medicines that I've had in those, in those forests with those people doesn't make you perfect, doesn't make those societies perfect, but it's helped me dramatically. So, uh, the film, Tawai, as, as Dave said, we've seen bits of it, um, and it's very, very it's beautiful, actually. It's, apart from anything else, uh, it just is a complete treat on the eyes to, to look at but it's also very powerful where can people see it when can they see it um, and anything else they should know well, it's coming out in the UK this autumn um, and the release date is the 29th of September and, but that's not the whole country that's just like maybe 10 or 10 cities but then it's going to roll out we've got like up to I think 30 or 40 different venues thereafter so it's going to Scotland and Ireland Wales and so it's um, you're just going to have to check your cin- local cinemas, really. But we have a website, tawai.earth. And how's that spelled? T A W A I dot earth. E A R T H. Thank, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so tawai.earth, we will have all the listings and then just check your local art house cinema. It's not, we're not going to the big ones, we're just going to the art house. And, um, and it, it really is a. It's so much better watched in the cinema. I've showed it. I've talked to friends who who've seen it on a laptop at home, and like you get interrupted. And it's a film about concentration, and the immersive experience of being in the cinema. It really does. Um, it makes a huge difference. Every director wants their film to be seen in the cinema, but really, I, you know, it, that's that's its natural home. So, uh, I really hope people um, find a way to do that. That's great. Uh, Bruce, thank you so much for your time. Um, yeah, and uh, I'm, uh, I want to watch it in a cinema now. Should we go and watch it in a cinema? Let's go and watch it in a cinema, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Really Bruce. nice to meet you. Thank you. Oh, 
you, oh, a lovely, what a lovely chap. And doesn't he make you feel all connected and enlightened, old? Yeah, he does. It's very powerful, isn't it? Everything he's talking about. Um, would you like? Would you like some of these mushroomy things I have in my hand? I think you could usefully use them. Sure. This has gone weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All has a trip live on radio. <laughs> Thank you so much to Bruce. Uh, yeah, so his film is out pretty soon. Check out Hawaii.earth to find out when you can see it. Uh, you can get in touch with us. Let us know what you think of the show. We've been away, but we are now back. We're back. We're back. Back for the new school term. We've got our new uniforms. Dave's in his short shorts. It's all very... Very connected. So uh, get in touch with us. Let us know what you think. You can find us on Facebook. You can just search for Sustainababble. We're on Twitter at The Babble Wagon. Or drop us an email to hello at sustainababble.fish. Thank you, as always, to the legendary Dickie Moore for the music that starts and ends and intertwinkles this here podcast. All right, we will be back next week when, unfortunately, we won't be talking to international explorer and documentary maker Bruce Parry, but we will be talking to one another, Yes, which... You know, something of a come down. Yeah. (laughs) We'll fill the time. (laughs) Bye. Bye.